Amen. Well, grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Um, if you want to open, you, some of you got your scripture journals, you want to open up your phone and, and open up an app, that's totally cool. We're going to be in Mark 11 today, verses 12 through 25. And as we've studied through Mark, we've continually wrestled with who is Jesus? And then secondarily, in light of who Jesus is, what does it mean for me to be a follower of Jesus? I mean, we've wrestled through Jesus' explicit teachings, but we've also watched his life. And we've, we've wrestled through why he does what, his, what he does. His actions are a window into his heart. And the more we see him and understand his heart, the better we're gonna be at following him with our lives. And so I pray this is true of us today. Last week, Tanner did a great job of just unpacking the introduction to the Passion Week. Because in the Gospel of Mark, we've hit slow-mo. I mean, we've, we've covered 11 chapters, and now from chapter 11 to chapter 16, we're roughly gonna be in one week of Jesus' life. And so Mark's slowing down, and, and we're getting a a play-by-play -play of the last week of Jesus' life. Last week, we saw Jesus' triumphal entry where he comes humbly into Jerusalem riding on a colt as the promised king who's come to save his people. Hosanna, Hosanna, the Lord who saves. And what we saw when we, we ended last week just to go back to verse 11, it says, after he entered Jerusalem, it says he entered the temple. He, he entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple and, and we had looked around at everything. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. We're not told there what was going on as Jesus looked into the temple. He went to Bethany, most likely he was staying with his friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha, but I can only imagine as Jesus, the promised king, who's coming in to Jerusalem to go to the temple and to just ask, is the temple doing and accomplishing its purpose? And so what we're gonna see today is Jesus comes back to the temple and, and it becomes pretty transparent that he, ab he had observed some things that needed to be addressed. And so I'm going to pick up here in verse 12. Mark 11, verse 12 through verse 25, the word of God says this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came, uh, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. One just little side note, at the end of verse 25 there, you may see a footnote. In my Bible, there's a footnote one, and you look to the bottom, and you see verse 26. You may notice there's, in, my, in the ESV, there's, there's no 26 here. It just goes to 27. And in that footnote, it says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven, forgive you your trespasses. That was not in most of the, the manuscripts that we have. And, and you may hear in there an echo from Matthew chapter six. And so most commentators would say that that was probably um, an addition and, and that's why that it's not listed here in our text. Um, but here's what I wanna do. Before we dig in here, I want we need to see the larger picture of how these three episodes relate to each other before we jump into the, the nitty gritty details. And so first, I want you to see that there's three things that happen here. You have Jesus and him cursing this fig tree. And then you have this episode of Jesus going into the temple. And then after the temple, on the next day, you have the fig tree come up again. Jesus comes back by and they see this fig tree and this fig tree had been, had been cursed. And so what we have here is an A, B, A structure. And you may say, hey, what's the point of this? Um, hey, I'm not in seminary class here. Like, but th this is important for us because this structure here tells us that these are to be interpreted, not separately, but together. You know, in one sense, we have like a fig tree sandwich. You know, you've got the fig tree on the front, you've got the fig tree on the bottom, and in the middle here, you've got the temple. As a little side note, my grandparents made some awesome fig, fig preserves. Has anybody ever just had some fig preserves? And I, I see, yes, like I think of my mom and Papa Simmons, and I would always go there. They're gonna, they're gonna toast with some butter and fig preserves, and I'm making you hungry for lunch now, so I better stop here. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fig pan fan, but I love fig preserves. That probably says more about my maybe desire for sugar um, that's loaded in the jelly than, than anything there. Um, but, but, but jumping in here, we may ask this question, why does Jesus curse the fig tree? We've gotta get to that. Like, just think big picture here. Like, what's going on? It says here in the text that Jesus was hungry. We see just a little glimpse in here into his full humanity. Jesus actually got hungry. 
And so what does it say? It says, and so seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Now let me just pause here. The initial um, takeaway is that Jesus sees this fig tree, it's in leaf, and so his assumption is that it might provide something that would solve his hunger. We keep reading though, and it says when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And then we've got this statement that just makes it confusing. For it was not the season for figs. To which I wanna just ask, hey, if it wasn't the season for figs, why is Jesus even assuming or thinking that he might get something from this tree that's gonna feed his hunger? And so he, here's what's happening. Like, was it the season for figs or no? And, and, and here's the point, um, as, as I've dug, it, dug in here a little bit and learning about fig trees. And so in the March, April timeframe, which is when this would probably have been occurring, fig trees would have, would have in addition to the leaves, would have been sprouting little buds known in the Hebrew as pagum. And these little buds were at different levels of maturity. They were definitely not f mature figs. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the time to go and gather mature figs, but they were edible and often were eaten by natives. And so this gives us a little insight. So one commentator like paraphrases what verse um, 13 says, and he says, given this, a paraphrase might be, it was, of course, not the season for figs, but it was for Pagum. In other words, Jesus was going to this tree expecting that it had something that would cure or that would give and solve his hunger. So what does he do? He goes up to the tree and there's no Pagum. And so it says that he curses the fig tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. So now let me just ask a larger question. How does this cursing of the fig tree relate to what Jesus does in the temple? When you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that you would see is that the fig tree was often used as a symbol of judgment. I'll give an example here from Jeremiah chapter eight. Look on the screen here. Jeremiah chapter eight, verse 13 says this. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. Now, I know I just pulled a verse out of Jeremiah. You're like, man, you could probably go find that anywhere. Here's the point here. If go, I would encourage you, go read Jeremiah 7 and 8 this week. We can't unpack that. Jeremiah 7, later on in this passage, when Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah 7, 11. So there's no doubt in my mind that Jeremiah 8 was probably in, in Jesus' mind here as he's cursing the fig tree. And Jeremiah 7 is one of the most scathing sermons against Israel in all of the Old Testament. 
So what, what's going on here? Here's, here's what's happening. Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is a visible parable. He's actually acting it out. It's a visible parable that signifies the judgment of God on the unfruitful temple. It's a visual parable that signifies the judgment of God on the unfruitful temple. Here's the analogy. The temple is just like the fig tree. Even though the temple's commerce and activity and sacrifices suggest fruitfulness, like the fig tree's leaves would, in reality, it is a den of robbers. So, just as the fig tree was cursed and withered, so will be the temple. Jesus' triumphal entry combined with this cleansing of the temple meant his death would be near. I know Tanner said last week, hey, the messianic secret, that's no secret anymore, right? Like there's no, there's no turning back. Jesus not only has come into Jerusalem as this promised king, he's now gone to the place of central worship and he is calling judgment upon it. And as you can see, he caught whose eye? Verse 18, the chief priest and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him. So I just asked this question. What does this, and here's what I want us to dig in today. What does this teach me about Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And, and I see here, like, I don't wanna be under the curse of God. I don't wanna experience his judgment. I wanna be, I wanna experience his blessing, which be a, would be a result of God seeing something that is fruitful. And so two questions that, that we're gonna dig into today is what is the fruit that Jesus desires? Or to maybe ask another way, what is the fruit of true discipleship? What is the fruit of true discipleship? I'm gonna give us five encouragements today from this text on the fruit of true discipleship that Jesus desires for, for us. And the first one is this, watch out for hypocrisy. Watch out for hypocrisy. Now, as we dig into this truth, I need to unpack a little bit more about the temple. You guys here with me say, I'm with you. Hey, I love that, thank you. We can talk back. Um, the temple had four main areas or divisions. Okay, so you had the court of the Gentiles. You may think, hey, this is just useless knowledge. I'm not, like, this is important. It, the, you had the court of the Gentiles. Then you had the court of the women. Then the third area was the court of Israel, which was only for circumcised Jewish males. And then you had the Holy of Holies. So Gentiles, women, the court of Israel for the men, and then the Holy of holies. What we're reading about here happened in the court of the Gentiles. It was this outer court here. And what does it say? Looking at verse 15, Jesus goes in there and what, what, what's happening? It says, there were, there were people that were selling and buying there. We also see he overturned, there were money changers there. 
And it says he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So, so what's going on? What was happening here? Just to paint you a picture. This was the week of the Passover. During the Passover, Jerusalem's population probably grew at least 10 times its normal population. So you've had scores of people who've come to Jerusalem. In addition to that, there were probably thousands of thousands of people. Josephus, a Jewish historian, gives us a window into this. He says, now this is just jumping ahead, but in AD 66, he said during Passover week, there were 255,000 lambs that were sacrificed. Like that's hard for me to wrap my head around. But like, just think about that happening this week. The, the, the people that were there, the amount of commerce that was happening in the temple for all of the sacrifices to take place. One commentator says this, it was a virtual stock market of animal dealers and money changers. Why? Well, the reason there were money changers is because when you go and read in Exodus 30, that when, when you came to offer your sacrifice, that there was, a, um, there was a temple tax that everyone was to pay, and you had to pay in, in, a, in the form of a shekel, right? So there were money changers. There was all of this foreign currency because people are gathering on a Jerusalem, and they had to get a shekel to pay the temple tax. The, the second reason, so that's why you've got those money changers. Now you've got all of these merchants who were selling what was necessary for the sacrifices. We have, what do we have mentioned here? It says pigeons. Pigeons was the sacrifice of the poor. But you also had lambs. You had, there was oil, there was salt. So anything that would have been needed, there was, there was commerce there in the temple. And I mean, just to step back, what kind of sacrifice did it have to be? What, what do you guys know about this? Could it just be any sacrifice? No, you guys are with me. What, what kind of sacrifice? Spotless, perfect, blameless. It had to be inacceptable. It had to pass the rigorous inspection to make sure that it would be a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. All of this, and I'll just make a little side note here. I think Jesus highlights here the pigeons because in particular, he's trying to highlight how the poor, in a very particular way, how injustice was being done to them through this. But th this was all created for convenience, right? Like I can go to the temple, they've got everything I need, and, and, and we just exchange that out. But what was the problem with this? Here was the problem. The clue to this is later on. Look down in verse, uh, verse 17. And this is, the, verse 17 is like the window into like why G, what really set Jesus off. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers, of robbers here. Like you, you see him highlighting the financial aspect up here. here. Here's maybe what may not be transparent. The merchants were marking up the cost of the sacrifices, incredibly so, which made this shameful and immoral. The money changers, I have a note here, one comer said the markup was up to 16 times the normal price. 
They were making money on this. Like this was a business happening right inside the temple. So what are some words that might come to mind as we think about this? Maybe extortion, maybe bribery, maybe greed, maybe dishonesty, all happening in the temple of temples, the creator of the universe, a place that was supposed to be making much of him in a house of prayer. So what does Jesus do? He drove them out. It says he overturned the tables and the chairs. He wouldn't allow anything to carry through the temple. He, he acts with righteous rage and indignation. Daniel Aiken says this, Jesus restored, at least for a moment, the temple of God to its rightful purpose. Catch this. Here is God's greatest high priest exercising his rightful authority over his temple. But let's dig in here a little bit more. Why does he respond this way? Jesus is attacking the commercialization of temple worship. The temple, a place of worship, had been turned into a place of corruption. The money changers and the merchants had made worship efficient, but possibly, no, clearly at the cost that, that there was a lack of preparation that was flowing from the heart. Hey, I could just go and I could get my sacrifice and I could check the box, but was worship flowing with a desire to know God? In addition, he says, you've turned this into a den of robbers. In addition to robbing people of money, they were robbing God of worship. The temple had an outward appearance of devotion to God, but that worship proved to be hypocritical, like the fig tree that had the leaves, and, and Jesus said, hey, maybe I can find something there for my hunger. The temple had a display of worship, but it delivered another. Additionally, we see the hypocrisy in the spiritual leaders. What is their response? They don't inspect themselves. They don't look inward. They look to destroy him. And I think this is a word of, of caution that every leader, including myself, as I've wrestled through the text this week, needs to hear. We need Jesus to make us fruitful. So as I think like an encouragement, watch out for hypocrisy because that's what Jesus sees in the temple here. And, and that's at the heart of a lot of what's leading to his response. And so what would be the opposite of that? We see Jesus has already addressed it in Mark 7. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus wants us to worship. He, he doesn't want us to turn a check. Like he wants us to worship with all that we have. And I would say love ought to be something that shapes our response to God and how we engage with others. Go read 1 Corinthians 13 this week. But in office hours with our staff this week, we, we sing Build My Life. And I just wrote up on our prayer board, 
lead me in your love to those around me. That's, the, that's what we wanna get after. Like God, lead me in love toward you. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbors myself. And that leads right into the second encouragement I wanna share with you. Second, worship Jesus, the new temple with your entire being. Worship Jesus, the new temple with your entire being. There's something so much larger than the cleansing of the temple going on here. Look, from the very beginning of the scriptures, if you're new here to Christianity or maybe in the Bible, I'll give you a nugget here that'll help you just as you read it. A theme throughout the Bible is this temple picture. And I'll unpack it this way. It's the people of God in the place of God enjoying the presence and blessing of God. You can trace it all the way through the Bible. And so we, we come here as we, as we think about the temple, you see God's temple in the Old Testament. You see promises by the prophets in the Old Testament. God is gonna restore true temple worship. He's gonna send his Messiah. When his Messiah comes, there's gonna be true temple worship. But here's what we're beginning to see. Jesus doesn't come to restore the temple. He comes to fulfill it and replace it. Jesus doesn't come to restore it. He comes to fulfill it and replace it. So rather, even though this is called a cleansing of the temple, it's actually, it's condemnation and pronouncement of its coming end. And we know this, history tells us, AD 70 is when the temple is going to be, is going to be destroyed. And later on, we're gonna see this played out in Mark. We see it in other gospels. Jesus has an interaction. Hey, hey, they say you're gonna tear this temple down and raise it up in three days, right? This temple, you go to John chapter two and Jesus' interaction with the temple. So let me just ask this, like how does Jesus fulfill and replace the temple? This probably is not gonna surprise you. Jesus is our true Passover lamb. Jesus is the one through his death that, you know, they're all coming to the temple with these lambs because it's through them that, that they could they couldn't be made right with God. But that was just a picture. It was a foreshadow. The substance belongs to Jesus. If you're here today, like, I want you to know, you were made to know God and be with him. You were made to enjoy the presence and blessing of God. But every single one of us, including me, we, we've sinned. We've, we, I want to be my own king. I don't wanna to listen to Jesus as my king. I need help. In fact, I need more than just help. I need a savior, I need a new heart. Jesus is my Passover lamb. He, he is the one through his death that I have gained access to God. So he's the Passover lamb, Jesus is the great high priest. He's the one who right now is in the perfect temple at the right hand of God interceding so that I can be and enter into the presence of God. And he's put his Holy Spirit in my heart so that we're actually temples. The church is a temple and as believers, we are little temples scattered all over the earth. I'll come back to that more in a little bit. 
He's our Passover lamb. He's our high priest. He is the temple. The center of worship now is Jesus. As we continue to study Mark, we're going to see this. Mark makes this really explicit. Later on, when Jesus dies on the cross, you know what immediately happens? You know what Mark tells us? The curtain in the temple is torn. Hey, but here's something even even better here. And, And what that symbolizes is that Jesus' death is the means of access to God. He's the one now that you get to God with. It's not this temple, but what happens after that? After that acknowledgement, the very next verse, you have a Roman centurion. Now I need to hit pause here because I didn't explain something earlier. The court of the Gentiles. Do you know the negative impact of all this on them? There was no room for them in the temple. All this, that's, that's, that's what made G, like my house is to be a house of prayer for the nations, the Gentiles, because of all your commerce, don't even have any space in the temple. There's only one area for them. So now later on in Mark, you've got a Roman centurion who cries out, surely, truly, this man was the son of God. And so here's the cool part. The very first person that Mark tells us that gains access into this new path is a Roman centurion. It's not a Jew. Ironically, the first person to embrace the newness is a Gentile who represents those who were denied a place in the part of the temple assigned for their use. Mark's trying to teach us here, I'm gonna come back to in a second, something about God's heart for the nations. So how do we worship? I better pick up my pace. It is a response of our whole being to all that God is and who he's done in Jesus Christ. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And let me just say this, we dishonor God when we minimize worship to I showed up on Sunday, even I served on a team, or I pulled out the Redemption Hill app and I set up giving and you know I can move on from that. Or, hey, I'm gonna connect with a group. Those are great things. God wants your heart, he wants your life. In addition to those things, God is concerned about how you worship him in your home, with your roommates. If you're married, with your spouse, if you have kids, with your kids, what you do at work, what you do with your, like, he wants your life that you were made for him, and this is good for you. The third encouragement I wanna share with you is make a way for everyone to meet Jesus. Make a way for everyone to meet Jesus. I've already alluded to verse 17 being at the heart of why he gets so angry a house of prayer for all the nations. Here's what some believed. Some believed the Messiah would come and purify the temple of Gentiles. But that's not what Jesus does because that's not at the heart of God. 
Numerous commentators say this, Jesus doesn't come to clear the temple of Gentiles, but for Gentiles. Like you and I, like he's come to make access to everyone. And so what Jesus does here in this, when he says, is it not written? Jesus is quoting two scriptures here. The first one is Isaiah 56, verse seven. The second one is Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 11. Just for sake of time, I want us to read a little bit more about what was going on in Isaiah 56. I think it's gonna help us understand what Jesus was getting at, what, what was on his heart. I've got it on the screen here for us. And this is Isaiah 56, verse three, and then six through eight. It says this, let not the foreigner, you hear that word foreigner? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. These I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This passage is such good news for everyone. It is about the extension of God's salvation to those who've been excluded, foreigners, eunuchs, exiles, and Gentiles. Here's the point. The temple is not reserved exclusively for the Jewish people. Israel was to be a light and a blessing to the nations. And this is why our heart should beat for the nations. This is why we do things like a multiply march. And we're trying to say, God, we want our hearts to chase after the nations. And, and I know there's a lot of work here and in a lot of ways the nations have come to Boston, but we don't wanna lose sight of this. Like we, we look into Revelation, it says every people, tribe, tongue, language are gonna worship, like global worship is, is what God is after. He's gathering worshipers from the entire world. And he wants to use us to see that happen. Yes, can I get another amen? Like, thank you. This is why our hearts should beat for the nations. It's why we should leverage our lives here to make a way for everyone to meet Jesus. Because what happened in the temple is that the Gentiles were pushed out because of all of the commerce that was happening. One of the highlights of my week was a conversation I had with Monica Tofik. As you guys know, I mean, you, you received a handout coming in today. Just We've been working on finalizing details for community groups for the fall. And um, I, I just loved it. I mean, so I was talking to a number of people and just praying about, hey, God, what do you want? And, and how do we fit into different pieces? And, um, and so Monica, as we were, we're on a phone call, she just said, John, our vision is that Medford, and all of these surrounding towns, like we want everyone to have a chance to hear and respond to the gospel. And so that's why I want a group in Arlington and I want a host. Like that's, she gets it. Like, I love it. 
Like, that's their vision. Yes, thank you. Like, yes, Monica, I love it. Just like, and, and, and what else thrilled me and, and is that, and not that I feel this way with others, but it's like, man, I'm not doing a group because John's asking me. Like, I want to host because this is my heart for the people that God's put around me. Your community groups should be many temples, missional houses of prayer for the nations. So let me give you a few encouragements. We should live in such a way that not, not that we obscure God, but that we bring people to God. And the problem here is that people could not come to God because they were being obscured. We want to... Like, we want to be bringers. We want people to come to God. And so I'll just ask you a few questions here. Well, where will you plant your personal temple that it might be a place where people experience the true life that Jesus offers? With that, are you willing to pay the, any price necessary that all the nations might hear King Jesus? And I want to hit a pause and pray for some people right here. If you would be willing... I wanna, I wanna just recognize and pray for our teachers right now. If, if you're a teacher and would be willing to stand, I don't wanna make anybody feel uncomfortable, I wanna ask you to stand if you're a teacher in here. And that can be elementary, middle school, high school, college, any level here. Hey, let's, let's thank the teachers. Stay standing, stay standing. I also wanna ask our students, if you're just a student, I wanna ask you to stand. If you're willing, I don't wanna embarrass anybody, but if you're willing to stand, I wanna see some of our students here. here here's what I want us to do, church. I want you to just, just extend your hands or look around, maybe there's someone close to you. And let's pray because I, you have some very unique opportunities to let the light of Christ just shine through you. You're gonna have some relationships with parents and kids that, that many of us will never be able to have access to. So let's pray. I'm just gonna give a few moments. You pray quietly. I'm just gonna lead us in praying for our students and, and our teachers. Father, we acknowledge teaching is hard. You add into that COVID and, and all other challenges. God, it is hard. Teaching is hard even with students that have, have lost progress because of COVID. God, would you pour out your abundant grace on these teachers? I see elementary. I see college. I see homeschool moms and dads. God, would you give them wisdom for the many challenges that they're gonna face? God, I pray the love of Christ would just ooze from them. You would help, you would lead them in love to their students, to their parents, those parents and guardians. 
God, every day, would you strengthen them? Would they experience your presence, your joy, your power? God, we pray, even though most of these, their primary role is is not teaching the gospel. God, I pray in a very real way that they would live in such a way that the the dimmer switch of, of Christ would be on full display. It would be evident that there is something different, the spirit of God in them. They would be like many temples scattered across greater Boston. God, would you bless and use them this year? God, we pray for these students and the challenges and and friendships and navigating being a student still in the midst of COVID and face masks and all of that. God, God, I pray, God, for our students that they would grow in knowledge, not just about you, but about, about this world. God, would they be a friend? Help them to look to be a friend to someone. Would you help them and be gracious with them? God, we pray, we commission, we send. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, thank you. All right, two more encouragements. I'm gonna do these quick. The fourth one I wanna share with you is live with a faith that pleads for the impossible. Live with a faith that pleads for the impossible. As we continue through this text, we see down in verse 20, they pass by the fig tree in the morning and it was withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse is withered and Jesus, and then he teaches them and he says, have faith in God. And it, you know, we just probably, does that seem just odd like that that's Jesus' response right here? It seems almost like it's coming out of nowhere. Like, have faith in God. And then he says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. There, there are two possible, and just briefly I'm gonna cover this, two possible interpretations here. One is general and one is specific. The specific interpretation, and it's around what does it mean this mountain. So um, this mountain could refer to the temple. And what Jesus is saying here and and a number of commentators, and uh, this is probably my lean, is that what's in view here is the replacement of the temple by the believing community. In other words, contrast to the prediction of the prophets that the Lord's house will be elevated, it in actuality will be cast down. Or as Craig Blumberg says, it's far more likely that Jesus is calling his disciples to trust in his promises that a new world order replacing the temple is imminent. Now just pause, like think about that for a second. If Jesus is really saying, He's casting judgment on the temple and this new worship is gonna be centered around him. That probably requires some faith. Like Jesus, like, I mean, this is the center of our worship. And so he's calling them to a faith in him. So that's one impossible interpretation. Another, which many scholars would still affirm is a, a more general interpretation where this is a call to trust God not necessarily 
tied strategically here to this new world order and the destruction of the temple, but to trust God and go to him in prayer despite everything to the contrary. In that sense, the mountain here is not referring to the temple, but it's hyperbole to refer to what appears impossible. And so whether you take the specific or general, I think we could still find other scriptures that would be similar to this, where we still hear Jesus saying, ask, ask, ask. You could go read through the gospel of John. Taking in a general sense, true prayer is praying in faith, trusting that God wants his will to be done on earth. You can be certain of a future act because of the trustworthiness of God. Faith and prayer both rest on the character of God. But these verses can also lead us into error, potential error. And so I love Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life. He says there's two errors to avoid in prayer. The first one is this, not asking at all. We don't ask at all because God really doesn't do anything. That's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is we ask selfishly. On this end, I'm basically turning God into doing my will. And so he says this. He says his concern is from his perspective, most of us tend toward this other spectrum. Most of us tend to, to ask too little of God than to ask too much of God or to ask more selfishly. And so he says, here's maybe an antidote to this. Four words. Ask boldly, surrender completely. And he looks at Jesus for this. It's actually in the gospel of Mark. At the end of Mark, in verse Chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus in the garden says this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, what I will, but what you will. Remove this cup from me, not what I will, but you will. Ask boldly, all things are possible. Surrender completely, not my will, your will be done. So he, here's what I wanna challenge you with. You can't ask too much of God. And this is convicting of me because I would affirm that I lean probably on the spectrum of, of, of not asking God too much, but of too little. I lean too much on John Chasteen. And so this is to me myself, what is it that you have been hesitant to ask God boldly for? And where is God calling you to surrender completely, trusting he's good, sovereign, and wise? This summer I was meditating on this in a little bit, and here was another encouraging word. God is never frustrated by your asking. I think some of us, I know me as a father, it can be overwhelmed at times. Just like, dad, 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 right? Like, if you're a parent, you get this. Like, it's just the constant, like, you know, and then you throw a bunch of kids like I do, and you know, it's like, you know, at any minute moment, it's dad, 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 dad. And like my response, sinfully at times, is frustration. But that is never God's. 
And I think I portray that on God at times. And so God, help me not to think of you that way, but that you delight when you say ask, you really want us to ask. When he says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you've received it, it'll be yours. Like ask boldly, come to me. I'm your father, I love you, don't hold back. And then finally, the fifth encouragement, forgive as you have been forgiven. And there's an unmistakable echo of the Lord's prayer here. And you may be asking like, man, what's, why is he talking about forgiveness here? Like he's talking about faith, prayer, forgiveness. This ought to be what's happening in the temple, by the way. That's why. But he gets the forgiveness here because in other words, if you, if you can't forgive others, if we can't forgive others, it shows that we ourselves are not conscious of the grace that we've received and we need. When I pray, I don't pray because I, like, I don't deserve for God to hear my prayers. It is not based on my merit. It is based on Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray as one who says, God, you've been merciful to me. Would you be merciful to others? And so, reflect. Can you forgive those you once hated and who have wronged you? Who was there by the Spirit of God? He's convicting right now that you need to step out and initiate forgiveness. And I want to lead us with this point. As we just kind of tie a bow and wrap up, like if I were to summarize in one point, what I want you to get, trust the one who judges justly. We see Jesus' judgment here. Trust him. Trust the one who judges justly, but extends grace to everyone who genuinely seeks him in faith. He's inviting you to himself today. Let's run to him. So what is the fruit of discipleship? Let's watch out for hypocrisy. Let's pursue true worship with all of our being. Let's make a way for everyone to meet Jesus. Let's plead with God for the impossible and let's forgive as we've been forgiven. Let's pray. Father, even as I preach these words, I hear these words to myself and I am one who needs you to extend grace. God, I don't want it to be said of me that I honor you with my lip, but, but my heart is far from you. And yet, God, I'm still one who's, being, who's growing more like Jesus. I'm being sanctified, and I need you to, to, to root out sin in my heart. I, I need you to, to work in me. God, I need your grace. God, I want to be one that's daily living, that Romans 12, but all for your bodies is a living sacrifice. God, I want to have vivid the sacrifice of Jesus, my Passover lamb, my high priest. So God, would you work in me? Would you work in us? God, we want love to shape our relationships. God, we don't want to receive the judgment or cursing that we've seen here on the temple. God, we want to receive your blessing. We want to receive your favor. So God, would you lead us? God, by your spirit, would you show us where, where we need your grace, and God, would you help us to, 
to, to be responsive. God, we also don't want to be like these leaders. We want to see our sin. We want to see our failure. And we want to pray, God, your kingdom and your will. God, we thank you for our time today. God, lead us in worship as we respond in Christ's name. Amen.